In today's episode, we peer into a black hole, we say our final goodbyes to the iPod, and Spain brings in transformative laws around menstruation. But first, it was on this day in 1957, Britain tested its first hydrogen bomb near Christmas Island in the Indian Ocean. India and Pakistan are experiencing some of their worst heat waves ever, with temperatures climbing above 50 degrees Celsius. This has caused widespread crop damage, power outages, school closures and, unsurprisingly, health warnings. Scientists link the early onset of the region's intense summer to the climate crisis and say more than one billion people may be impacted by more frequent and longer heat waves. Speaking with Democracy Now!, Chandni Singh, a researcher on climate change adaption, explained the extent of the heatwave and its relationship to the climate catastrophe. There has been a lot of back and forth on this, that how, to what extent can we attribute these current heat waves to uh, anthropogenic climate change. What we know clearly is from the climate science that we are expected to and already seeing uh, longer and more intense heat waves that are more frequent across the Indian subcontinent uh, because of anthropogenic climate change. So that is already very clear. However, specific events, it's more difficult to attribute them. And that's really a lot of scientists are working on that currently to say whether this heat wave is uh, attributable to climate change. I'd also like to add that the World Meteorological Organization, the WMO, put out a statement the other day that uh, it's too early to attribute this particular set of heat waves to climate change, which was picked up by a lot of media outlets. But uh, the second line in their statement really reads that this uh, particular heat wave is as expected uh, because of anthropogenic climate change. So it is a trend that we're seeing. We don't know. We can't say with a lot of certainty on this particular event right now. But heat's not the only thing affecting communities in India and Pakistan. There are also what Chadney describes as compounding factors. So this idea of compounding risk is multiple things happening simultaneously. Last year, we actually saw a cyclone on the east coast of India happening while we had the pandemic raging, the second wave of the pandemic. So you've got multiple things coming together, which can really test uh, your health infrastructure, uh, government systems that are expected to deal with all kinds of disasters. So that's the idea of compounding risk. On the other side, you have this idea of cascading risk, which is that what happens in one sector won't stay in the same sector. A classical example of that is agriculture and food yields in rural areas then cascading out to cities. So you've got things that are moving from sector to sector, which, of course, uh, can also have a lot of uh, ripple effects throughout the country, but even beyond the country based on trade routes. Saruchi Badwal, a climate scientist at the Energy and Resources Institute in Delhi, spoke to PBS and she says this recent heat waves and ever louder warning of a climate catastrophe and the action needed. So no country is spared from the ill effects of the consequences of climate change, whether it's floods or cyclones or tornadoes or storm surges or heat waves. Today we are facing it. So we do need very stringent action to make sure that you know, we are not converting this world into an uninhabitable place to live in. What does a black hole sound like, do you think? In science fiction films, they usually sound horribly ominous. But in reality, well, have a listen for yourself.
NASA has released a new sonification of ripples from the black hole at the centre of the Perseus galaxy cluster. If you thought space had no sound, you'd be dead wrong. This is a popular misconception due to the fact that most of space is essentially a vacuum, providing no medium for sound waves to travel through. A galaxy cluster, on the other hand, has a tonne of gas and that allows sound waves to travel. In this new sonification of the Perseus galaxy cluster, the sound waves astronomers previously identified were extracted, scaled up and made audible for the first time. Come on the Sunday 7, it's Adios to the iPod and the Arctic's permafrost problem. We've said goodbye to the Shuffle, the Nano, the Mini, the Classic, and now the Touch. Gone are the days of silhouettes grooving on multicoloured backgrounds, Apple's officially bidding farewell to the iPod product line. 21 years ago, on the 21st of October 2001, Steve Jobs walked onto the Apple stage to announce a product that would completely transform the way we listen to music. There it is, right there. So, this amazing little device holds a thousand songs, and it goes right in my pocket. As the sun sets on the iconic device, we caught up with tech writer Chris Merriman. This was the first time that there was a mass market product that allowed people to carry around their entire music collection with them in a way that just hadn't been possible before. That resolution began with the iPod Classic. I think the original, you could put 500 songs, but that soon went up very, very quickly. That first model was just almost teasing us for what was to happen next because, you know, we suddenly went up from that to a 1,000 and then to 5,000. I remember getting getting them all, going from like 1,000 to 5,000, 10,000. But one could argue the iPod was just the start of bigger things to come. The biggest one they did could carry 20,000. Uh, but then by that point, of course, the smartphone had come along. It's fair to say, actually, that the, without the iPod, there wouldn't have been the iPhone because the, the first iPhones were iPods with, you know, that could make calls. The final one that's going, the iPod Touch, became an iPhone with no phone attachment. So, you know, the history of the two are interlinked. Is this the end of the road for iPods or could we see their return? Could they go retro? When you consider that vinyl sales are through the roof and indeed cassette sales have started to go back up again, I would say never say never. As global temperatures rise, thawing permafrost in the Arctic has been recognised as one of the most immediate problems of the climate crisis. Permafrost covers 24% of land masses in the Northern Hemisphere and accounts for nearly half of all organic carbon stored within the planet's soil. So what will happen to the planet if climate change melts what's left of this permafrost? Shedding light on this overlooked threat, Arctic geologist Sue Natale revealed on the TED stage the true danger of heating up the iciest place on the planet. The thawing permafrost threatens everyone on the planet because it stores a massive amount of ancient frozen carbon. And when that carbon thaws, it can be released into the atmosphere's greenhouse gases, leading to more warming and more thaw. So let me place the magnitude of this problem in perspective for you. 
By the end of this century, greenhouse gas emissions from thawing permafrost may be on par with some of the world's leading greenhouse gas-emitting nations, perhaps as large as or larger than emissions from the United States, the second largest greenhouse gas-emitting country in the world. This isn't a new phenomenon. Arctic residents and scientists have been observing permafrost thaw now for decades, but the scale of the research hasn't been sufficient to meet this enormous challenge. And what doesn't get measured doesn't get accounted for. Because we can't put a precise number on permafrost emissions, policymakers are essentially excluding them, setting global emissions targets that are wholly insufficient to protect us from catastrophic climate change. Ignoring permafrost is essentially like leaving a major greenhouse gas-emitting country like the United States out of global climate negotiations, which is not a good idea. What we need to know is where permafrost is thawing across the Arctic and how fast. What that means in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and how that will impact our climate in 10, 50 or 100 years from now. And answering these questions requires a huge effort. Through an ambitious new initiative called Permafrost Pathways, we've formed a coalition of Arctic residents and scientists, indigenous knowledge holders and Arctic and climate policy influencers to tackle this problem with the urgency it deserves. To get started, the first thing Sue and her team will need to do is actually measure greenhouse gas emissions across the entire Arctic. So we're working with a team of international scientific experts to strategically identify and fill these monitoring gaps by installing new equipment across the Arctic in remote locations where monitoring currently doesn't exist. We believe that by installing just 10 new monitoring sites, we can drastically improve our estimates of permafrost emissions, which will remove a major barrier to their incorporation into global global climate policy. But the truth is, even with the most ambitious climate action, some permafrost is going to thaw. That's already happening. Right now, across the Arctic, people are having to make extremely difficult decisions about where and how to live in order to protect themselves and their families from the hazards of climate change. Ultimately, the climate crisis is a human rights crisis. And it's one that's already underway. But through these actions that we take now, we can greatly reduce future harm and take us on a more just and equitable journey. Still to come on the Sunday 7, the Royal Society of Chemistry wants your waste, and it's more bad news for the Great Barrier Reef. Right after this. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to The Sunday 7. Follow us for your weekday news espresso, or even try our island edition. It's in all the usual places. do when it's time to upgrade your phone. On average, we upgrade our devices every two years. So what happens to the old and unwanted ones? 
So we carried out a survey to find out whether people are recycling their old tech. The results of our survey suggest that there could be up to 40 million different pieces of tech sat in people's drawers and cupboards up and down the country. And this could be a huge problem for the environment. That was Elizabeth Radcliffe from the Royal Society of Chemistry talking to the BBC. Smartphones contain dozens of valuable elements that have to be mined, and the Earth hasn't got much of them left. The Royal Society of Chemistry says there now needs to be a global effort to mine our phone waste rather than mining the Earth. If you were to open up your phone, you'd see a mix of precious metals like gold and platinum, but there are also a few you may never have heard of. Elements like indium, which is used in the conductive coating that makes your touchscreen touch-sensitive. That's also needed for solar panels. Other metals like tantalum can be used in a variety of vital medical devices like pacemakers and hearing aids. So what are we to do? Well, the first thing is don't throw away your devices or leave them to rust in a dark forgotten drawer. Recycle them. Professor Lenny Coe from the University of Sheffield tells you why. With increasing demand for latest technology, smaller devices, the reliance uh, on electronics and uh, more sophisticated technology is going to go up. Therefore, there'll be more waste to be recycled. And you could also delay your upgrade. Who really needs a phone every two years anyway? The rollout of 5G is imminent, so a lot of people will be thinking about upgrading their device, which is which is great. It's great news, and it's great that we have these options for ourselves. Um, but it's also good to think about whether we really need to get that new piece of tech right now. Um, because just by holding on to it for another year really helps in terms of in environmental terms. But before you recycle your phone, make sure you do your research. So choose the right company and make decision to choose the right company that do recycling process and do recycling business in a responsible way. While the US faces a battle over abortion rights, Spain is making big strides to support women during menstruation and pregnancy termination. The European nation set to become the first Western country that would guarantee three days of workplace leave per month for women who experience harsh menstrual pain. The reform plan, which aims to close the gender gap, is set to be approved by the Spanish government this week and also includes medical leave for women recovering from an abortion. Periods for many women are not just mild inconveniences, they can also be painful, debilitating experiences. So there are two types of painful periods or dysmenorrhea. There's primary dysmenorrhea and then there's secondary dysmenorrhea. So primary dysmenorrhea just describes painful periods in a woman where there is nothing wrong with the pelvic organs. So everything's working fine. This kind of pain is generally related to the period. So it will come on just before the period and it kind of feels like just dull, crampy ache in the bottom of the stomach. It can radiate to the lower back. Some women even feel the pain in their thigh. This is NHS GP Dr Simi Adediji. On a YouTube channel, she shares medical information on women's health. You generally just feel unwell. There can be nausea, vomiting, diarrhoea, dizziness, headache. Some women even faint because the pain is that bad. And usually the pain lasts for about three days and it gets better as the period progresses. In primary dysmenorrhea, the cause of the pain is due to a chemical called prostaglandin. Prostaglandin is released from the uterus during menstruation, so it stimulates the uterus to contract. Now, when the uterus is contracting, the blood vessels inside are being squashed, and because blood carries oxygen, that means that during contractions, there's less oxygen being delivered to the muscle of the uterus, and this causes the pain. This gives you that crampy pain that you're getting. Also, for women that suffer from heavy periods and pass clots, 
um, especially big clots, that can be painful to pass because the uterus has to contract in order to be able to expel this clot out of the cervix, which is like a tiny hole. And that gives this crampy pain. And once the clot is passed, which you can sometimes feel, you feel, ah, oh, the pain is so much better. It sounds like a rough ride, but that's just when the body's functioning as it should. Like endometriosis, which affects around one in 10 women, the pain can be increased and prolonged. This is a really common condition where the lining of the uterus basically is misbehaving and it goes and implants itself outside the uterus. But even though it's outside the uterus, it still builds up every month and bleeds every month, but there's nowhere for that blood to go, so it's bleeding into the pelvis, and this can be painful. The change is part of a reform package set to pass at Spain's next cabinet meeting on Tuesday. As part of the reform, schools will also be required to provide sanitary pads for those who need them. Sanitary pads and tampons will also have VAT removed from their sale price in stores, as well as being provided free of charge to women in marginalised social circumstances. Between the tampon tax, the wage gap and gender equality in the workplace, it looks as if Spain is certainly heading in the right direction. Australia's Great Barrier Reef has experienced yet another mass bleaching event. That's bad news on its own, but unusually this bleaching happened during typically cooler weather conditions. Aerial surveys examined more than 700 individual reefs and found that 91% exhibited some sort of bleaching. Sarah Hamilton, an Australian reef researcher, was with the BBC and explained what it all means. So the Great Barrier Reef is made up of 3,000 individual coral platforms and each of those platforms itself is covered by uh, hundreds of individual corals. Now those corals have a symbiotic relationship with the algae that live in their skin. They rely on those algae their food. So the algae produce sugars, energy, um, and when coral bleaching happens, um, that relationship breaks down and the, coral, the corals expel the algae from their skin. Uh, because those algae give the corals the colours that they have, the corals uh, start looking white. That's essentially a stress signal. So the corals are then in trouble. They're uh, without most of their food source and they've got a short uh, time window, say about five, five days to a couple of weeks. Um, within which to either repopulate themselves with algae, otherwise they'll die. That's obviously bad news for the coral, especially at a time for cooler weather conditions. The fact that this is happening in a La Nina year, this is the first time we've ever seen this. It's unprecedented. La Nina is part of a climate cycle that typically happens every two to nine years, and we can expect uh, cooler waters along the uh, northeast coast of Australia during a La Nina year, obviously. That's superimposed on top of a continuous sort of upward trajectory of warming ocean waters. So you would hope that within a La Nina year, um, the corals of the Great Barrier Reef might get a bit of reprieve in terms of having waters that are hot enough that would cause them to bleach. And obviously that's not happening. So what needs to happen? UNESCO want to protect the reef as a World Heritage Site that's in danger. However, Australia's government isn't that keen. So the UNESCO list of World Heritage Sites in danger, that's designed to encourage governments to act better and uh, perform as better stewards of any World Heritage Sites that are in danger. Uh, with respect to the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, it would push the Australian government to act better in terms of uh, phasing out fossil fuels, and that would be something that's only good for the reef. This has been the Sunday 7. Wherever you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with the regular Smart 7. Have a great rest of your weekend. Written, produced and published by Daft Doris.